Perhaps I would swear or uh, affirm the witness then if... Yes, sir, you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I do. Thank you. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Could you kindly introduce yourself to the commission? Uh, my name is Dr. Aris Lavranos. Um, I've been uh, an emergency physician for about eight years now. Uh, I have a very, very small sort of family cl clinic where I see patients in an outpatient setting follow up from the emergency department, which uh, I've been doing for a couple of years, really in response to COVID. Um, and I am just about to graduate from law school. Now, can you speak a little bit more expansively, Dr. Lavranos, uh, about uh, your history of practice and your areas of practice? Sure. So I did my residency and fellowship in Ontario um, between Kitchener-Waterloo, Hamilton, um, Collingwood, South Lake, sort of that, that area. Uh, I returned to Nova Scotia about six or seven years ago. Uh, I practiced all over the province, practiced in Digby, Practiced in Amherst, practiced in Kentville, the IWK, um, Central Zone, Truro, uh, traveled throughout the province. Uh, over the COVID crisis, I practiced mostly from Truro, occasionally in Kentville, the IWK, and Cobblewood Emergency Departments. Okay, so when you say that you practice in uh, emergency departments, would you be appropriately, would you be classified as an emergency room physician? Oh yeah, yeah, and I did my family medicine training with a fellowship in emergency medicine, so a sort of subspecialty in that, and that's what I did almost exclusively. And what does emergency medicine contemplate? So we see, um, you know, like the primary care in general sees everybody uh, as their entranceway into the healthcare system, but generally speaking, the emergency department is the uh, face of the hospital structure to the public. So one of the things that I often like to comment on, and I think some of my other uh, colleagues have mentioned it already, is that um, public health decisions, the impact of those is felt in places like the emergency department, perhaps predominantly in the emergency department. A lot of public health consequences aren't always amenable or agreeable to being seen and followed up in primary care in a family physician's office. So an acute case of a sexually transmitted infection, an acute case of a sick child who might not get in um, to uh, a family medicine appointment. So we see a lot of those kinds of consequences. Now you just commented on, on public health policy a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that came up during the testimony of Dr. Chris Milburn. And this is on the record, on the public record, uh, in the news. But uh, Dr. Strang, I understand, made some comments that as an emergency room physician, Dr. Milburn should not be commenting on public health policy. Mm -hmm. As an emergency physician, are you qualified to comment or have an opinion on public health policy? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, stating anything otherwise uh, is a little ludicrous. Uh, we see patients who are or are not wearing their helmets in bicycle accidents, right, to the, who are and are not wearing their seatbelts, and this is all within the ambit of public health. Um, you know, if we have, you know, epidemics or outbreaks of infections, infectious diseases, measles outbreaks, um, sexually transmitted infections, so I mean, we are exposed to all of those things. And then, of course, other consequences of sort of like, let's say, more broad social determinant of health, 
which also falls in the ambit of public health. So, for example, if smoking cessation improves, uh, we do not see as many smoking-related issues. If um, you know children start vaping a lot more, we see a lot more evidence of consequences of vaping in children, um, and so on. So we are certainly exposed to uh, to all of that, and it would be within the ambit of anybody, let alone someone who has a public health background or understanding expertise. Uh, as emergency physicians alone, to be qualified to comment on that. And for the record, can you confirm? Dr. Lavranos, that you've provided me with a copy of your CV. Yes, I have. Okay, and that will be entered as an exhibit for the commission. Within the scope of your practice, and you've told us that you've covered a fairly wide geographical area of Nova Scotia, approximately how many patients would you attend with or otherwise treat in the run of a week? So, uh, it's a good question. Depending on the week and how heavy I'm working, yeah, uh, how many clinic days or how much schooling or those sorts of things. But when I was working at my, at my fullest um, in the course of if I did three or four shifts, I work more than most of my colleagues when I'm working full-time. I, I, I acknowledge that. Um, I could see probably five or 6,000 patients a year. So that would probably be like the upper limits of what I would see if I was working full-time. So that's 18 to 20, 22 shifts a month. Um, an average of 25 to 30 patients per shift. So it's a lot. Yeah, it's a big number. And at the beginning of the pandemic, let's go back to early 2020, what were your professional plans? Sure. So um, even before entering uh, sort of the idea of going into um, law, um, I liked the idea. I've always been interested sort of like politically, um, administration-wise, and my my idea was to find more training, leadership courses, certifications to try and bring back some of that expertise into the medical field, um, but certainly never to stop practicing clinical medicine. Uh, I love emergency medicine. I really, really love it, and I think that I'm quite good at it. Uh, so, I mean, like, there's a tremendous amount of meaning and reward in my life from that. Um, but then sort of going into law school, I thought that I would bring back some of that legal training, do something college-related or administration-related. Um, but as a consequence of the COVID pandemic, my life trajectory has changed dramatically, dramatically. So m my pursuits now are, I, I become very, very disillusioned with the practice of medicine um, in Canada, generally in Nova Scotia specifically. I think that a lot of the consequences and crises that we are seeing now were, um, could have been um, mitigated at the very least, if not uh, diverted outright. Uh, and so I am pursuing a career in medical malpractice to try and hold hospitals and physicians accountable for the errors that lead to the crises we see. That's very interesting. And, <laughs> and for the benefit of the commission, um, can you just briefly talk about when you went to law school and, and what your why you did that initially? Yeah, so um, again, the intention, that was not the intention. I really, really enjoyed my uh, advanced negligence course. I really enjoyed my tort course in first year, but the um, I liked constitutional law. I liked administrative law. I liked the idea of um, supporting healthcare policy. You know, I, I contributed at least likely to um, Tim Houston's uh, plan in Nova Scotia um, to legal bodies advocating for certain 
conservative platforms for healthcare. So that was kind of the direction that I was originally interested in. So the idea of medical malpractice was very, uh, was new. That was later on, definitely. And a final question about that, Dr. Lavranos. Uh, when did you go to law school? Uh, when did you graduate, if you have graduated? And did you continue to practice medicine while you were a student? Uh, I did. I practiced medicine throughout uh, law school. I did um, uh, sometimes like a reduced load. We would consider 16-ish, 14 to 16 shifts to be full-time emergency medicine practice uh, per month. Um, I would do six, eight, maybe even ten on the month, depending on what the month was. So not quite full-time practice during school. Um, during reading weeks, during the summer, it would jump back up to sort of a much more heavier, heavier workload. I started uh, law school in 2020, 2020, 21, 22, yeah, 2020. Um, but I worked uh, throughout the pandemic and throughout, uh, um, like school hadn't started at the beginning of the pandemic. So I worked pretty intensely of the, over the first nine months of 2020. And, and has that completed or are you still in that process? Uh, yeah, so I'm still, I'm still doing that. My law school has another six weeks or seven weeks of school. Okay. All right, we'll shift gears and go back to the pandemic itself and your experience as a physician. Now, based on your education, training, experience, in any medical literature you had read, what was your understanding on the front end of the pandemic of the danger posed to public health in Nova Scotia by COVID-19? Yeah, um, so uh, I was definitely one of the mo the biggest alarmists when it comes to COVID in the beginning of 2020. Um, January 24th or the 26th, I can't remember which of those two, but I was on shift in uh, Truro. I was handing over to my chief or they were sort of like on shift with me. And uh, Xi Jinping um, uh, of the CCP had just announced that they were going to shut down the province of Wubei, Wuhan, um, whatever. And I had thought to myself that this is going to be peri-apocalyptic for somebody in such a precarious position of power on the world stage to announce the, the political ramifications of that. I thought that this was going to be massive. Um, at that time, I was very much on board. Two weeks to stop the spread, I thought sounded insufficient. I thought that we really needed to have closed borders immediately. This whole idea of you know Trump having been racist for suggesting that and oh you should just go and eat at Chinatown. Uh, the Democrats were saying I thought that that was not appropriate. I was like, people are under-emphasizing how dangerous this could be. Um, but that perspective only lasted maybe a couple of months. Once we started to see what the, um, the seroprevalence data um, that was coming out sort of the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, uh, that's when they were. it was published, but the, the data was out there beforehand in 2020 by Bhattacharya and Ioannidis showed that it was probably nowhere near as um, fatal uh, as we had thought. The Diamond Princess cruise ship was the first week of February, the second week of February. Um, 900 people, 3,000 contracted the virus. I think something like that, maybe nine people or seven people died. So not nearly what we had thought or what we had expected. These videos of people collapsing in China, largely discredited. Um, the reports out of Tehran, largely discredited. Uh, demographic data coming out of New York was very early on in the summer. I think it was like June or July of 2020. 30%, um, 35% of all fatalities were happening from long-term care facilities with people who are extremely old and extremely comorbid. So very quickly, I became sort of disillusioned to the idea of the alarmism and hysteria that was sort of flowing around COVID. Uh, just, a, just a brief point of clarification, Dr. Lavranos, for the audience. 
when you say uh, individuals were largely comorbid, yeah, what does yeah. that mean? Yeah, so, I mean, like, there was this <coughs> meme that went around uh, when the CDC published the data showing that something like 94% of patients who succumbed to COVID had 2.6 comorbidities. So those are chronic conditions that stick with you. Now, appropriately, a lot of the pushback against that was, well, lots of people have comorbidities, for sure. But the average ages of death were fairly advanced and patients were very comorbid. And if you looked at the number of patients who were healthy who succumbed to COVID was really much older population. So comorbid means like other medical conditions that could contribute to somebody's general frailty. Okay, thank you, Dr. Lavranos. And you just touched on another point that has come up a couple of times, and I believe one of my, or one of our commissioners uh, asked about this. But can you briefly explain, as time went on, your understanding of the age stratification of risk associated with COVID-19? Yeah, so it was uh, apparent that this was the single greatest contributor to uh, comorbidity uh, as a risk factor for COVID, uh, morbidity or mortality. So prolonged stays in hospital, even if you survived, or um, passing away from COVID. Uh, it was by far the most important. Um, and I would say probably summer, fall of 2020 is when that was kind of very well understood. Very well understood. There are, there are other comorbidities that sort of came out, right? Like early on the whole idea, because it was a quote-unquote novel virus. I mean, like at least clinically, it was a, a, a novel thing. I mean, like uh, we've heard a little bit about the sort of immunology, virology component about it. Coronaviruses are well understood and well known for a very long period of time. But at least this was a novel virus, even clinically. And so the idea that it was initially a respiratory predominant kind of uh, concern, and then it became a little bit more of a coagulopathic concern that what we thought was actually lung harm turned out to be microangiopathic clot disease, renal failure, heart attacks, that kind of a thing. So um, our nature, our understanding of it evolved. And with that, the comorbidities that you know could lead to consequences of that also evolved. But age was certainly the biggest risk factor by far. So several orders of magnitude. If you are 80 years old versus eight years old is a massive difference, like thousands and thousands times more lethal um, for aged population. Now, I want to ask you, Dr. Lavranos, about what you personally observed within your capacity as an emergency room physician as the pandemic evolved throughout 2020. Yeah, so um, in... In, in just a moment, uh, I apologize for interrupting you, doctor. Specif I'm specifically asking you about COVID illness. Yeah, okay, that's what I was, I was just gonna follow. Okay, so with respect to COVID specifically, um, I've seen very, very, very little COVID, uh, very little COVID over the um, COVID crisis. Um, I've seen probably, if we exclude like the last six months, if we look at like uh, up until Omicron, let's say, um, I probably saw 10, maybe 12 people with COVID. Almost all of them had survived. Like I was seeing them post Right, like um, I saw one person who was sick. They were not sick with me, actually. They they became sick later, um, but I I had seen nobody sick with COVID. Like having to intubate them, resuscitate them, or anything like that. I was not. I never saw anybody like that. I saw maybe a handful of people who had COVID who came in runny noses, coughing, coughing, sneezing, kind of typical uh, respiratory tract infection sicknesses. 
Well, in the, in the many hospitals that you've worked in, as you explained earlier, did you witness any overburdening of hospital resources as a result of COVID admissions? Uh, certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, like, it was a bit of a joke in the hospital uh, in Truro when I was there. We had our COVID unit stocked and ready, and we had a COVID physician on all the time, braced and uh, waiting. Those physicians were starving for work. They would come down and see patients in the emergency department and call, you know, like, do you have any business? Do you have anybody with COVID around? Do you want us to come and see someone? Oh, that sounds like it could be COVID. Do you want me to come and see them? So it was, um, no, I never saw, I, I never saw any overwhelming of hospital okay. resources. And this is a somewhat redundant question, but I think it's an important question. Um, do you have any awareness or can you speak up to today regarding the ultimate mortality numbers appropriately attributable to COVID-19 in Nova Scotia? Uh, without having sort of the data here uh, in front of me, the uh, numbers are um, very low. Uh, I would say that. I, I, maybe even extremely low, I would say that. Um, the Average age of death in Canada is not much different than it is anywhere else in the world. Tend to be much older, much more comorbid people. Um, and um, I mean, like Nova Scotia, we are older than other places in Canada. There's no doubt about that. So actually, we're, we're considerably older, uh, you know, like uh, compared to Alberta. Um, and so our risk compared to other provinces, probably a little greater to that extent. I mean, like at least colloquially, we are, Atlantic Canada tends to be a little bit of a heavier set provinces. So um, obesity tends to be a risk factor as well. So in that regard, we're probably a, a little worse off than the other parts of Canada. But generally speaking, case fatality rates in Nova Scotia are just like they are everywhere else, very, very low. Now, would you have been in a position within your capacity as an emergency physician to observe the impact of anything that you would attribute to COVID-19 policy or public health policy? Yeah, big time. Definitely. And so, you know, this amazing commentary back and forth between Dr. Chris Milburn and Dr. Strang um, is interesting to me because we do see that a lot. So um, deaths of despondency and uh, conditions and, uh, uh, of despondency, which is substance abuse, substance misuse, suicidality, depression, mental health collapse, uh, is just skyrocketing, absolutely skyrocketing. So from a, a personal point of view over the last uh two and a half, three years, um, it is alarming, distressing, the amount of those kinds of things that we have seen. So I have just dozens and dozens of examples, dozens of them, but uh, I'll just relay a few of them that I recall. Um, two senior citizens, um, uh, one lady ultimately passed away uh, in hospital. The last thing that she said to me, uh, coming from a long-term care facility, is, I'm just so lonely. And that was the last thing that she said alive. Um, I had a, uh, an elderly gentleman from a long-term care facility lovely gentleman I had seen and known him, uh, him a couple of times before, uh, really, really regretted going into a long-term care facility just before the pandemic started. Uh, said that, you know, feels like a prisoner, not allowed to leave, not allowed to go out, not allowed to do things. He's like, I would never have done this. This is unimaginable. Um, I had a absolutely lovely physiotherapist who came in, two kids, struggling at home, kids on in school, husband was a trucker, gone a long time, absolutely hysterical uh, in fear over the uh, risk that the virus posed to her, which was very, very low, exceptionally low. 
actually young, healthy person, no comorbidities, um, uh, hysterical with that, asking for anxiolytic help for her anxiety or depression. Um, the number of patients we've seen who don't have access to their uh, physicians for chronic care, whether it's cardiologists, nephrologists, hematologists, uh, rheumatologists, whatever specialist um, they are. Number of patients who have come in with surgeries delayed. Someone needs a gallbladder out, comes in much sicker because their gallbladder surgery has been delayed. Um, uh, diagnostic imaging, I've been waiting for an MRI for nine months. It's been put off. My pain, my concern, my fear is getting worse. Missed screening appointments for cancers. Uh, Loads of that. Um, and then perhaps worst of all, um, uh, uh, alcoholism. You know, like I'm used to seeing a very slow, steady state of um, alcohol induced liver cirrhosis uh, over the course of a year. I don't know, probably I see five or less patients. And there were some months over the uh, COVID crisis that I would see five in a month. It was just really, really alarming. Um, a uh, couple of them, one of them I ended up following very closely, uh, liver transplant, uh, just everything sort of fell apart as a consequence of loss of their regular routine, loss of their regular work functioning, loss of their regular uh, recreation, contact with their loved ones. And so, I mean, like people sort of succumb to um, their vices of choice. Um, and then, but the worst of all by far was uh, during my shifts at the IWK. Um, now, I, I can't attribute all of this to COVID policy, but I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that, you know, children not being in school, not being exposed to their extracurriculars, not being in touch with the rest of their family units, not being in touch with the rest of their um, uh, uh, friends um, in a household that the parents are struggling more and more financially, whereas their comorbidities are also worsening. So I mean, like, this is not conducive to mental health in a child. And so when I was at the IWK, especially during 2020, um, was it tw end of 2020, 2021, somewhere around there, um, just the amount of mental health um, use at the IWK was just skyrocketing. Emails being sent out requesting help uh, from the physicians in the emergency department to offload some of the burden from the mental health team as they were seeing such massive volumes of uh, mental health issues. Uh, meanwhile, there's no COVID in children that we were seeing. Like children are not coming in, you, you know, like flooding the department with COVID or um, we're super sick with COVID or other things, right? Like not having, you know, regular school place accidents or other extracurricular accidents or, you know, all of the sort of bread and butter things that we would see in a pediatric emergency department. The volumes were much, much, much reduced, whereas uh, mental health was skyrocketing. And it's an interesting thing, sorry to keep going here, um, but it's an interesting thing because you think to yourself that, well, at least the um, regular infectious disease patterns were reduced, and that's pretty good for children, right? And the answer seems to be, well, no, because you've got to pay the piper at some point. And the question is, how much interest do you owe? And so what we're seeing in the last year with children flooding the emergency department sick, right? Just flooding and calls like, we've never seen anything like this. We can't keep up and um, Advil shortages, Tylenol shortages, all those sorts of things. So I mean like the immune debt that follows from all of this um, are consequences. So we're still seeing the consequences of these kinds of COVID policies for sure. Okay, and I do not want to put words in your mouth, but I just want to make sure that I understand your evidence. When you talk about immune debt, Yes. And an escalation in children's hospitalizations now. Am I understanding correctly that what you're saying is because they were isolated, 
uh, and they weren't regularly exposed to germs or pathogens, that they have weakened immune systems? Yeah, I mean, like that's kind of the theory of it, right? That, um, well, I guess there are two ways to go about to, to look at this. One would be the sort of like, let's say, economic component of it, right? Like the, the numbers of it. So if 1% of children who contract viruses are going to get really sick and need to be admitted, um, and normally that's a slow simmer all the time, well, when they all get sick at once because they all return, even if it's still 1%, the, 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 the absolute number has risen a lot. So that's one component of it. The other component is there's probably some um, uh, cross uh, immunity between viruses. So you have, uh, you know, in 2020 or 2021, you get like a little bit of a runny nose or a cough or sneezing from some coronavirus or parainfluenza or adenovirus or whatever. And then a month or two months later or six months later or a year later, you get something that is similar in nature. Well, maybe you have a little bit of some cross immunity and so it kind of helps buffer things. So, I mean, like these are sort of like theoretical things. There's no, there's no RCT to try and figure out how that's going to work. But certainly, you've got to pay the piper at some point. And so a slow simmer, um, I guess, would be what's most preferable. Okay. Uh, just a final question in connection with what you just said. And I want to make sure, again, that I understand you and that the Commission understands you appropriately. This, what you describe as escalation in pediatric admissions, is, is it currently related or not related to the COVID-19 virus? To my knowledge, hmm. it is not. Okay. To my knowledge, it is not. I mean, like, certainly there, there could be, but, um, I mean, like, the most recent major issue um, was not associated with the COVID virus, no. Okay. And one more point of clarification, Dr. Lavranos. Uh, when you were speaking, you indicated that there are many issues associated with delayed care. What was the cause of delayed care? You, you referenced the diagnostic imaging, you yeah. referenced surgeries, you referenced access to specialists, uh, and some other things. Why yeah. was that, uh, that access like uh, a inhibited? A tremendous amount of resource allocation to um, preparation and um, sort of shoring of resources, anticipation of um, COVID harm. And so, you know, for example, I mean, like the amount of patients that we see from family physician referrals because of virtual care who were not seen, were not examined, you know, like we do not have a heart rate, we do not have somebody referring somebody who uh, was listened to their chest, you know, felt their pulses, um, checked their fluid status, you know, those sorts of things. So, I mean, like, so we got, we still have a flux of patients who are not being physically seen um, and who are at best being virtually seen, right? So, like, we see all of those kinds of patients. Um, and then, I mean, like, there was a big report that came out maybe last year, $65 million over a four-month period were paid to specialists to help support their incomes because they were not seeing patients at the usual rates that they would normally see. So I think that it was several hundred physicians who qualified for that. I think, if I remember correctly, it was over 400. So like 400 physicians over four months are getting paid $65 million to support their incomes for not seeing patients. And this is because rooms are being taken for COVID or wings are being taken for COVID or nursing demand is being uh, moved or whatever the case might be, right? And so uh, we like, that has consequences because and the evidence out there for this apart from you know personal experience but the evidence for out, out there for this is um, is striking it's alarming 
how much weight gain has people had? How much worse is their hypertension? How much worse is their diabetes? Um, did somebody have a heart attack that went missed that ultimately became heart failure because they didn't want to come in? Did somebody's um, diabetic ulcer worse and progress dramatically because it was, they were not seen? So these kinds of things are, ha are happening all the time as a consequence of, um, I mean, like neglect is too harsh a word, but as a consequence of the reprioritization of resources. So everything that you've just described, uh, I think it would be fair to characterize them as, as negative yes. things that you've described. Would you attribute these negative contingencies to the COVID-19 virus or to public health policy related to COVID-19? Right. Um, so looking at what the case fatality rate is, what the demographics uh, of greatest concern, the comorbidities that are of greatest concern, certainly there could have been a, and when we knew this, there could have been a very different approach to, from a policy point of view, to mitigating the harms of the virus. And this has been um, championed, suggested many, many times by elite physicians, physician groups, states all over the world. So, I mean, like the Great Barrington Declaration certainly argued for a focused approach to uh, prevent lockdowns, so the protecting of the most vulnerable. Um, you know, did we have a prolific education campaign from public health so that we could educate people on who is at highest risk? I mean, like certainly by the end of January, no. We did not have, you know, public service announcements, town halls, um, uh, uh, advertising and educating the public as to what are the biggest risk factors, the top five risk factors, who is most likely to succumb, and then measures that they can take to protect themselves. We didn't have anything like that. We had lockdowns of businesses across the board. So that is a very heavy-handed and, in my estimation, ridiculous approach to what we knew about the virus, in, even at the end of 2020. All right, we're, we're getting close. I believe we have about four minutes left, but there's something I would like to get into with, into with you, if I could. Um, when the vaccines started to roll out, the COVID-19 vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, as an emergency room physician who practiced throughout a significant portion of Nova Scotia, did you observe any adverse offense, events associated with these vaccines? Um, I did. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. Um, that, in my estimation, were um, as a uh, consequence of the um, vaccines. Now, I, I, I should say um, that... Um, vaccine policy um, is one of the COVID policies that I was most, most concerned about. And I spent a lot of time in law school sort of researching, studying, and writing about um, the rate of adverse events from the vaccines that we saw, that I saw, um, were much, much greater in scope than I saw as a consequence of the virus itself. Now, that's my anecdotal experience. There's like, like, that I have to admit to that. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean that that would be the case across the board, right? Like, I, from that, I could not say that, um, by conclusion, the vaccines are unsafe. I couldn't, couldn't say that off of my experience. However, you've got to know that these are exceptionally safe, radically, like near certainly safe, in order to have mandates. That is the, the, the at issue to me when it comes to vaccine policy. It's not the supporting, the encouraging of vaccinations. It's not the addressing of vaccine hesitancy. It's not the mitigating of vaccine harms. I don't know. It is if you are going to prevent people from circulating in society, if you are going to attach stigma to a personal health decision, 
if you are going to label these people as denialists, misogynists, racists, whatever you want to call them, if you are going to inflame society, and we have seen the consequences of that repeatedly throughout history, right, repeatedly, whether it was the syphilis epidemic, uh, whether it's HIV epidemics, whether it's, you know, uh, abortion options and choice, whether, like, the stigmatization, criminalization of healthcare choices has recurrently in society been a, a, a major fault. That is like a huge public health consequence of messaging. And so to inflame those tensions, to drive that divisiveness in society for, in, in order to push the vaccines, you've got to be really sure that they are, quote unquote, safe and effective. And they need to be both safe and effective. It's insufficient to say, well, they're perfectly safe, so who cares? Just give it. Because if they're not effective, then what's the point? You're still taking a lot of harm without the benefit. So. Okay, a couple of follow-up questions on that, and I will try to be brief. <clears throat> so you indicated that you observed adverse events, which you attributed to the vaccine. Yeah. Was there discussion between you and your colleagues about those observations? And what I'm asking you is, was it your sense and experience that you are not alone in what you were seeing? Oh, yes, absolutely. I spoke to, uh, yeah, the evolution of, of thought in my department um, was remarkable. So what started off as, you know, uh, we have about 20 or 25 physicians. What started off as about one or two physicians kind of talking, you know, quietly hushed tones, emails and messages back and forth, um, concerns about COVID policy, about what is the actual fatality rate, what are the comorbidities, you know, what is the messaging like and so on kind of really started to grow over the course of the two or three years. Um, and then as vaccines came out, like there was a little bit of, well, you know, we've got to do everything we can, get everybody immunized and so on. And, you know, COVID still poses a major risk. But then you started seeing, you know, a couple of more issues, like, you know, the whole myocarditis, pericarditis. It's like, well, you know, actually, I don't usually see a lot of myocarditis, but I saw two or three last month. Or, well, yeah, you know, I don't see a lot of pericarditis, but I'm seeing quite a bit of it this month. And you start talking to another one of your colleagues who attests to that. You're like, you know, I, I, I saw a lot more than I'm used to seeing too. And then you start wondering, like, did I see this in the context of COVID waves in the past? Not really. And so, like, these kinds of conversations certainly were happening a lot. Okay. On that point, two more questions. <clears throat> did you receive any education or training regarding the monitoring or the reporting of adverse events associated with these vaccines? Uh, any training with the monitoring or reporting? No, 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 not at all. We got um, a couple of, like, as I recall, a couple of flyers saying, you know, you've got to report. I got, there was, I think, an email or a, a, a post-it note that said, please document vaccination status on every chart so that, you know, like you can collect data from that point of view. Um, and then because of, um, a really astute uh, and dedicated physician who I work with, we had the link to the reporting address, um, like an electronic link to the reporting address posted um, around our doctor's area. Um, the link was about that long, about that long. Um, would have taken uh, half a minute to a minute to type. Uh, just really cumbersome, very difficult process. And if you did report an adverse event, how long would that have taken event? to go through the process? I think, I, I mean, like, so probably somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes. Probably 5 to 15 minutes, I would guess. What is the significance of, of that within the context of working in uh, a hospital in Nova Scotia? Yeah, in an emergency department, 
I think that any of my emergency physician colleagues who are here would attest that that is like almost almost prohibitive. It is far, far too cumbersome. Far too cumbersome. Uh, yeah, very, very difficult, okay. laborious. And a final question on that point. What were your observations regarding the attitude and culture in hospital regarding reporting adverse events associated with the COVID-19 vaccines? I think the vast majority of people would hope that someone else would report it if it turned out to be such a, an adverse event. So I, like, I think that the majority of my colleagues knew that it had to be done, but didn't think perhaps like, well, maybe the emergency department, maybe right now is not the best time. Maybe I'll get to it later. Oh, the patient was admitted. Hopefully it'll happen. Oh, they're going to get follow up from a family physician or a specialist. Hopefully somebody else would go about it. I think that was a general sense of, my general sense of the culture of, of what it was like. Even the ones who were most diligent, who were like, I've got to do this. Um, they, even they found it difficult. Because I mean, 15 minutes, if you were gonna do that, let's just say two, twice, three times a shift, uh, 15 minutes is definitely enough time to see one patient. So that means that that physician would see maybe two or three fewer patients that shift just as a consequence of having to go through this reporting. And so two or three per shift may not seem like that much, but there are many physicians who are working in a department at a single time. So if we have you know six, seven or eight shifts, now that's suddenly 24 patients who did not get seen over the course of a day as a consequence of having to make this reporting, if that's the numbers, give or take, that we're looking at. And this will, uh, and I could talk to you all afternoon, Dr. Lovranos, but one more question. It was suggested by a witness yesterday, a nurse with, I believe, 40 years experience, that the underreporting of adverse events associated with the vaccines uh, was, in her estimation, a significant issue. Do you agree with that statement based on your experience? Yeah, it, it's a really good question because um, on the one hand, underreporting might be a problem, absolutely. On the other hand, um, you might have uh, an overreporting by some or by, by you know, um, individuals, right? And so you, the, the, the signal is very, very noisy. There's no doubt it's very noisy. You know, the adverse reporting system is not, um, is not great. I think that there are still other ways of looking at what are the potential consequences that are probably better. So, you know, if uh, diagnostic codes for people coming in are, uh, you know, can be measured, monitored. So like how many people had a heart attack in January of 2018, we could find that kind of a data, right? And then how many people had a heart attack in January of 2019, and then in 2020, 2021, 22. So you have sort of like bigger systems that can sort of look at this. The problem is at a much smaller, narrower focus, you can't really look at it in perhaps as acute real time and respond as quickly as you should. So, I mean, like one of the take home messages of the pandemic certainly would be to um, increase the reliability of this, such a reporting system, right? Like if, you know, for example, only physicians had access, you needed to have a physician code to register, um, the system was a lot more streamlined, maybe you could like, you know, um, electronically tag a patient's uh, MRN number or their health card number and just like easily auto-populate some kind of a, a form. So it's definitely room for improvement is, is what I would say. Okay, Dr. Lovranos, uh, I will turn you over to the commission, and uh, I have some questions to provide to them, I believe, from the audience. Thank you.
All right. Now, does the commission have any questions for Dr. Lavranos? Yeah, thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, one of the questions that I have, you mentioned that uh, initially in the community of doctors you were working with, there was just a few that were sort of aware that maybe something was not going on as they were presented by the health. Uh, authority and with time with the practice they evolve what would you say now currently is the level of awareness of your colleague in the small group of people you were um, like Maybe. I would say from in the group that I talk to uh, and work with closely I would say um, nearly a hundred percent nearly hundred percent so I would say of 20 physicians 19 of them uh, sort of look back in hindsight and think to themselves, this was not, um, this was not very well um, managed. And I guess the uh, corollary question is that uh, how many of them are willing to speak up? Me? I think just the one. Yeah. I think that, like, I have other colleagues who have helped me write letters. So, I mean, like we wrote a letter to the NSHA. I had a meeting with Dr. Strang in 2021. Um, I uh, wrote a letter to Tim Houston uh, and the government. And I've had many uh, colleagues who have written uh, and signed the letter with me. Um, but uh, this was largely sort of like a personal communication kind of a, a sense of anonymity. So like how many would be willing to sort of like sit here where I am sitting? It's, it's just me. Uh, the, the rest of them, um, too concerned about fallout, too concerned about um, reputational damage, that sort of thing. So I guess my question is that because of this issue of repercussion to speak up uh, from your personal path, I guess, why is it that you are coming up and expressing yourself on those issues, knowing fairly well that it could actually turn out into some consequences which are not very good? Um, I've got a lovely family. I love my wife very much. She uh, understands, uh, supports me. Um, I uh, am privileged enough to um, work in an environment where, you know, knock on wood, um, I'll 
my job security is still pretty high. Um, I am already having sort of a transition point into a, a, a different industry and the competition that that uh, has and um, the open-mindedness that it permits is different than healthcare. But all of those things aside, you know, there's that um, that uh, great uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote that says, you know, let the lie come into the world, let it even win, but not through me. So I, I, I take this um, to heart. Um, I think that it's really, really important. Um, the spirit of the truth is really important to embrace um, and to uh, uh, promulgate. So um, any consequences that come from speaking the truth are consequences that are worth following. So, you know, like, come on, man. And maybe one last question, given that it's been reported, I think fairly broadly, that the number of therapeutic intervention of different types uh, as early or sometime later on treatment could actually make a, have a big impact on the outcome. Yeah. And yet it's still fairly, I would say, suppressed in the, in the practice for a number of reasons. Uh, do you expect that eventually we will come to terms with that and the, the health authority will start seeing that these treatment needs to be freely authorized and let the M doctor practice medicine? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. It's actually a, a, a big question. My short answer is I don't think so, no. I don't think that that is likely to happen. I think that there are too many, um, there's too much of a bureaucracy, too much of an administrative state whether it's the college, whether it's guidelines that are produced by um, uh, uh, healthcare bodies, like for example, the Canadian Thoracic Society or the Canadian Cardiovascular Society. I think there's, there's too much um, industry and um, bureaucracy involvement to allow that kind of, and it's just generally speaking, not really the approach that we have in Canada. So it would take like huge shifts to do it. On the topic of therapeutics more broadly uh, for COVID. So just like I had mentioned about the vaccines, you know. Um, the vaccines, I mean, like, I think it would be disingenuous for anyone, anyone to say that they met our expectations. They most certainly did not meet our expectations. I think everybody would agree to that. Um, certainly transmission changed dramatically. Their impact on transmission, uh, you know, I, like I wrote a huge paper uh, in law school. The impact on transmission was very well understood. I was showing some of my colleagues the data um, last night um, very early in 2021. One, 2021, uh, like sort of January, February, March, you probably thought to yourself like, oh my God, this is something that we could really hang our hats on. This is something very um, uh, impactful. But by June, for sure, when it comes to transmission, like there was a huge study that was done, um, 70 countries, 3,000 uh, uh, 3, counties showing that there was like basically no association between COVID rates and um, the vaccines. That was published by Suprabanium in, the data was released, I think, in August, but it was published thereafter. Um, so that was like one of them. Um, obviously, Israel, you know, the northeast of uh, the U.S., uh, like the, so the evidence was overwhelming. So anyway, my, my, my point of all of that is to say that um, even if something is not super efficacious, if it's safe, it's, it's okay to have a conversation about its utility, right? Like, you know, give it a go and vaccines or with therapeutics is totally okay. So my, my big issue with the therapeutic conversation early on is that maybe azithromycin, maybe hydroxychloroquine are not panaceas. Maybe ivermectin is not a panacea. 
these things have been around for a very, very, very long time, and we understand their risks and benefits. And if I was going to prescribe azithromycin, which I do all the time, every week, I would say every week I prescribe azithromycin. And I think to myself, what are the pros and the cons? What are the risks? Who should I give it to? Who should I not give it to? And we give it up. I don't, I don't see much fault in such a system that we've embraced for ever. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony today. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I heard you say that early in the pandemic uh, time, you um, were very concerned about the potential dangers, uh, and that later on you developed concerns about um, health issues being not going undetected because of an allocation of resources having been put towards COVID units that mm -hmm. maybe were not being used as as busily as expected. What's your view on when um, a reallocation of those resources that were put towards the COVID units should maybe have come back uh, to focus on other on other health areas? Um, I would say uh, probably the by the end of 2020, there was sufficient data, global data, to know that uh, what was the risk posed, and I think that the strategy could be have been much, much better implemented by the end of 2020. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Lavranos. Thank you very much. Thank you.